You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Our text today uh, comes out of Luke chapter 6. And these are the words of Jesus. Hear these words now from Luke chapter 6, where Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to even the ungrateful and the wicked. All right, there's the text. And this text, I think, is about what genuine love looks like, right? It's a, it's a pure gift. To put it in the words of Jack Caputo, who's a big influence on me. It's an act of unmerited grace. It's, it's unconditional. Only love that's given to the so-called undeserving, I guess, is a kind of pure love, because otherwise it's, it's something else. As the passage says, if you do good to, if you only do good to those who are good to you, what, what credit is that to you? If you only love those who love you back, what's the big deal about that? So-called sinners. <laughs> The unrighteous do the same, right? The love Jesus is talking about here is a kind of, kind of pure love, which is, which is to say pure love is only possible when it's given to the so-called undeserving or when it's given without the hope of a return or a payoff or without the hope of it being reciprocated. This is not unlike what Jesus says in Matthew 25 when he describes the righteous as those who fed the hungry and clothed the naked and took care of the least of these without knowing, this is the key, without knowing that by doing so, they were actually caring for Jesus himself, without knowing that there was some kind of a a return or a reward to be had. Thus, the righteous are really righteous because they love and do good apart from any ulterior motives or any expectation of a return or a payoff. This is what truly makes them righteous. The the righteous, you could say, love for the sake of love itself. That's it. No religious motivation. God, religion, doesn't have anything to do with it, really. It's, It's love for the sake of love. Whether there's an eternal reward to be had or not, or whether or not Jesus is actually present in those who we're loving, it's irrelevant. We love for the sake of love. We do good for the sake of goodness. Love has its own reasons for doing things, in other words. It, It has its own logic, which is quite antithetical to the logic of this world often. The logic of this world or the love of this world is transactional, we would say. It's a quid pro quo. 
this for that. But that's not the picture of divine love. Divine love is antithetical to transactional love, which is to say that divine love is antithetical to what I call the divine incentive program. We've all heard of the divine incentive program. I'll explain it. And we, all, we find this also prevalent in the Gospels. We don't just find this divine way of being in the Gospels, this divine love, which I'm describing today. We don't just find that, but we also find this divine incentive program in there as well. And the two are at odds with each other, I believe. The divine incentive program is this idea that if we do good and love others, we can expect eternal rewards. And likewise, if we don't do good or if we don't love others, we can expect eternal punishment. Have you heard this before? <laughs> You've heard that preached on. You've heard that in the Gospels. We find it there. But implied in this divine incentive program is this idea that we are terrible people that will not behave unless we are threatened or rewarded. Which, of course, raises the question. If the so-called righteous need rewards or punishments to be righteous, are they really righteous? Are they really a new creation? Are they really born again, so to speak? Are they really born of the Spirit? Are they really operating in a way that's meaningfully different than everybody else in the world? And I think we find this dilemma, again, I think we find it wrestled with in the Gospels. I think we find both views. On one, high, on one hand, we find this divine way of being, and the other, we find this divine incentive program. And yet I think the Gospels lean away from the latter and towards the former, which is to say that the Gospels lean away from the law and instead lean towards grace and love in this divine way of being that I'm describing. And, and again, the two are really at odds with each other. You cannot invest in one without divesting in the other, or to use the words of Jesus, you cannot serve two masters. And in order to fully realize this divine way of being, we have to apply it, I think, to all of life and existence. I think what we find in Luke chapter 6 and Matthew 25 is more than just, more than just Jesus teaching a social ethic. But rather, I think we find a kind of life philosophy, which is to say the truly divine way of being is to live without expectations that the world owes us anything, that life owes us something. We must disavow any certainty that life is fair or just, or if we just do good and love others, that karma or God will make sure that things work out okay or, or good for us. We must let go of that. We must disavow any certainty that someone is up there keeping score uh, and making sure that the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished. As Jesus himself says in our passage this morning in Luke 6, for God is kind to both the righteous and the unrighteous. God is kind even to the ungrateful and the wicked. I'm sure those words really perplexed Jesus' contemporaries who absolutely believed in the divine incentive program. It, these words flew in the face of their concepts of fairness. But again, here we find Jesus' life philosophy, or at least the life philosophy I'm reading into Jesus' teachings, okay? I'll be fair about this. 
which is this idea that in order to really love and affirm life in its depths, just like in order to really love someone else, we must do so without any ulterior motives, nothing up our sleeve, or any expectations, and simply love for the sake of love itself. Again, I think this is more than just an ethic, but a life philosophy. And I think we modern people perhaps have a greater opportunity to understand this or to practice this, this divine way of being than anyone else before in history, because we know, we know from modern science just how precarious, just how treacherous and uncertain life in this realm really is. We now know that life is governed by the brutal and capricious and arbitrary laws of nature, natural selection, which let's be honest, is as cruel and ruthless as it gets. We know that 99% of the species that have ever existed on earth are now extinct, 99%, which is to say that the universe does not care whether we live or die. Nature doesn't care. We're just one asteroid strike away from being extinct ourselves. And we know, we know for a fact that if we remain on this planet, we will become extinct because our sun is as mortal as we are. And billions of years from now, it will go through its death throes and become a red giant and envelop the earth in its own plasma, turning this planet into just a piece of charcoal. If we are to survive as a species, we must become a spacefaring civilization and find a new home among the stars. But even then, we cannot escape the eventual death of the universe itself. The universe itself is mortal, Phys the physicists and the cosmologists tell us. It is experiencing entropy. That we cannot escape. Meaning the universe will eventually become a cold, dark, and lifeless place. All the stars will eventually burn out. All movement will cease. All heat will dissipate. And the universe will become a cold, dark, desolate place for the rest of eternity. That's not science fiction. That's science fact, as we know it right now. This news, of course, is not well received among uh, religious folks. This news creates some anxiety among many religious folks who believe that everything is under control and isn't left up to the random forces of nature. Moreover, religious folks often believe that life is only worth living or worth loving and caring about because God's in charge and making sure that everything makes sense or works out okay and that everything happens for a reason and everything will ultimately work out well in the end. But if that's not true, if we are really subject to time and chance, The underlying assumption for a lot of religious folks is that life, therefore, isn't really meaningful or worth living or worth loving. Ironically, in this way, theism can be actually more nihilistic than atheism. <laughs> I created a meme about this a few years ago that illustrates this point. Thanks, Bob. Right on the ball with that. <laughs> uh, so if you can't read it at the top panel, the guy on the left says, life is good, and I can live with the fact that there may not be a God or an afterlife. And the guy on the right says, what? That's nihilism. Life is totally meaningless if there is no God or afterlife. 
And then the guy responds, the other guy responds, I just said I love life and find it meaningful on its own merits. And you're telling me I'm the nihilist. <laughs> so I'm saying that it's precisely because of life's innate uncertainties and difficulties that we have a great opportunity. We have the opportunity to make a glorious expenditure. We have the opportunity to affirm life and love and being on its own terms for the sake of life, love, and being without any strings attached. It's because of life's precariousness and the innate uncertainties and difficulties of life, and only because of this, only because of this, that we have such an opportunity to practice a divine way of being. Love for the sake of love, life for the sake of life, unconditional affirmation, a glorious expenditure, giving ourselves sacrificially over to this life, this world, each other. What could be greater than that? No strings attached, nothing up our sleeve. Here we are with each other now, fully present as Christ was. And, I don't, and don't think that I or, or other modern theologians like Jack Caputo are the first ones to come up with this idea or that we're the first ones to read the Gospels this way, that the church mystics in the Middle Ages, they were doing this, they saw this, they thought this way. Or consider the words of Martin Luther, that great German reformer from the late Middle Ages, and I've shared this before, but bears repeating. Somebody once asked him, Martin, what would you do if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow? He responded, if I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, I would plant an apple tree today. Which, of course, on the surface sounds absurd. It's a, it's a, it's a futile act. Why would you plant an apple tree if you knew it was going to be gone in 24 hours like you and you'd never see the fruit? Why would you do that? He was recognizing this divine way of being in the Gospels. It's an affirmation of life, the deepest possible affirmation of life for the sake of life itself. He was, he was taking his cues from this divine way of being found in our scriptures, this idea that the deepest act of faith, the deepest act of love, the, the deepest act of grace is an affirmation of life in the face of all of its difficulties and uncertainties and perplexities. It's an expenditure without the expectation of a return or a payoff. That's faith. If there ever was faith, that's faith. That's courage. Or think of it this way. I love the ending of the movie Willy Wonka, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Not the Johnny Depp one. I'm talking about the original one with Gene Wilder, which is the only good one in my opinion. And by the way, who said that was a children's movie? Who said that was a children's movie? I saw that at the age of 10 and was utterly terrified, especially that part, um, real quick, you know, with the boat in the, in the factory, the boat ride from hell, you know what I'm talking about, where Wonka's like, is it raining, is it pouring, that's terrible, anyway. I love the ending when Charlie gives back to Wonka the everlasting gobstopper, right? Wonka, of course, knows that he stole it because he actually created the conditions for him to do so. It was all a test, right? 
It's all a test to see if Charlie was worthy of inheriting the chocolate factory. Now, Charlie could have kept the candy, right, like all the others did, and potentially made a good buck off of it by selling it to Slugs Slugworth, right? But of course, we know that Slugworth was really part of the test and working for Wonka, but he posed as a corporate spy looking to steal Wonka's trade secrets, right? So there was an incentive for him to sell it to Slugworth, like all the others. But Charlie gave it back. Why? Because it was the right thing to do, because Charlie was a man of integrity. And this, of course, was the way that Charlie proved his worth. And Wonka, in utter amazement and awe, whispered to himself in that moment, so shines a good deed in a weary world. I love that line. It's actually Shakespeare. So shines a good deed in a weary world. That's the gospel. That's the divine way of being. That's the kingdom of God. <laughs> Even found in Willy Wonka, it's on display for us, right? Love for the sake of love, goodness for the sake of goodness, kindness for the sake of kindness, compassion for the sake of compassion. No ulterior motives, just that by itself. One final movie illustration. Think of the end of the movie Titanic. And I've shared this before. Angie, you love this illustration. <laughs> she just reminded me a month ago, when are you going to share the Titanic illustration? It's been a few years, actually. I checked my files. Uh, so it's, we're overdue, and some of you haven't heard it before. So here we go. Um, if you've seen the movie Titanic, you know what I'm talking about. There was this, and I think this is historically accurate. There was a string quartet playing on the main deck Right As the ship was sinking, these four men played their violins on the deck as unspeakable tragedy and suffering and death. People were falling over the edge into the frigid North Atlantic, people clamoring to get on board, those fighting to get on board, those few lifeboats. These guys just play their music. Why? Why, why do they do that? I mean, they should have been running for their lives like everybody else, right? They should have been clamoring to get on board one of those few lifeboats. Can you imagine the stress? Why'd they do it? They, they, there was nothing in it for them. They didn't know they were going to become famous. They didn't know they'd be immortalized in a movie. They, they couldn't have been thinking of that. They knew they were probably there was a good chance they were going to die that night like everybody else they were seeing fall over the edge or people in the water drowning. They, they knew what was going on. Why'd they do it? Well, on the surface, you could say, well, it's because they knew that music would have a calming effect on people, right? It would have a calming effect in a moment of sheer panic and terror would maybe help a little bit. That's true. On the surface, I think that might have been their motivation. But underneath that, it seems to me, this was an act of pure love. No hope of a return or a payoff, just an act of pure grace, an unconditional affirmation of life in the face of death, utter suffering and terror. It's beautiful. It's, it's the divine way of being. It's a wonderful example of what the human spirit is capable of, even in the face of grim realities. 
And we all have this opportunity because in a way we're all on the deck of a sinking ship, are we not? The whole universe is sinking, the, the physicists tell us, but in more immediate and personal terms, are we not faced every day with our own imminent mortality and the, and the precariousness and the uncertainties and the difficulties of life? We're not faced with that every single day. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow and nobody knows why. There's no rhyme or reason to it. We're all subject to time and chance. This is life in the real world. And yet it's because of this and only because of this, we have a great opportunity. The only question that matters therefore is how then shall we live in light of this stark bleak reality? How then shall we live? This is not just a philosophical question, but a religious question. Religion and philosophy often have the same job, which is to prepare us for death, to help us die well, which is also to say to help us live well. And I think the best religion and philosophy have to offer us in this department is this idea of meeting death and, and life's precariousness with a glorious expenditure an unconditional affirmation, love for the sake of love, life for the sake of life. This strikes me as the most sublime and the most divine way to, way to live. As we turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper, I want us to meditate on this idea today of this divine way of being, immortalized, of course, in these elements, symbols of Christ, giving himself over to us in the world without any strings attached, laid his life down for all, for the cause of love. That's it. It's the cause of love, the ultimate act of faith and courage, here immortalized in holy sacrament, and by partaking in this, we are saying, I too wish to live as he lived, to give myself over to this divine way of being and allow his spirit to live on in me. That's what this means, I think. Here at Central, if you're new, the way we partake in the Lord's Supper is, first of all, to say this is an open table. All are welcome. Christ welcomed all to his table. So do we. It's not our table, it's his. And the way we do that is you're invited forward here in just a moment. Um, please take a cup. It's grape juice. It's not wine. And those are gluten-free crackers, so everybody can feel comfortable. But take the cup. Take the cracker, take it back to your seat, and receive it um, when you're ready as Max leads us in song. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Thanks, Max. That was really good. All right. So, um, as always, we open it up for dialogue. And if anybody wants to dialogue about this today, uh, questions, comments about this divine way of being. Jason, let me get you a mic so that everybody can hear you online and so that it goes on to the uh, 
podcast, you know all that. Steve, would you hand that back in, please? Testing. Yes. So I'm going to put my evangelical mask on for a second. Oh, good. I'm, I'm so looking forward to this. And put you on the spot. Okay. This unconditional love you're talking about, this let's call it free love, um, doesn't that mean that there's no such thing as sin? Because if I have no consequences for what I do, couldn't I do whatever I want? Like, you're basically saying that there's no such thing as sin and everything is allowed and I can do whatever. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my concepts or definitions of sin have changed. Shocking, right? Uh, I obviously still believe in moral good and moral evil. I do. But this idea of sin is a theological term. This, this idea that, um, you know, there's religious infractions for bad behavior and that, you know, God on high is going to hold you ultimately accountable for, you know, these, these things. Um, part of what I am saying in this message is my personal view, taking, taking my cues from Jesus, who's, who said at least in this passage, he didn't always say this, this passage, God is kind to both the righteous and the unrighteous. He's kind to both the ungrateful and the wicked, and he tells us to love our enemies. Well, if Jesus is telling us to love our enemies, do you think God might love his? Wouldn't that be a little antithetical if God didn't love his enemies but wants us to, right? Um, so your, your question is not really that, I guess. Your question was, do I believe, well, to phrase it again for me, Jason, do I believe that they're going to, that one will be held accountable for, what are you saying exactly? Without the divine economy, yeah, is there such a thing as sin? Is there such a sin, thing as sin without, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, here's the thing, like, cuts out completely, there we go. Um, I think there is in the sense that there's moral good and moral evil still, if you want to call that sin, I'm cool with that, but that's where I go with it. Does that make sense? I think one can believe in moral good and moral evil without ascribing a deity on high to it or involving that at all. Is, is that fair to say? Pagan. I'm sorry, what? I didn't hear you. <laughs> Pagan, yeah, yeah, exactly, right, yeah. Um, you know, th this idea that there is no such thing or good or evil unless there's some metaphysical big other on high, I find to be deeply problematic in a flawed argument. You know, there's this idea that we can't tell what good or evil is. We can't know right from wrong unless we have religion. Really? We, we have something called empathy, I think. At least I hope that that part of what makes us human is empathy, which of course is the ground of Jesus's instruction, do unto others as you have them do unto you. Practice empathy. If you're practicing empathy, you're practicing the, you know, the will of God. But you don't need God in order to practice empathy. Is not an atheist capable of practicing an empathy as well? Are they not human like us? You see the problem. And again, these, it's, yeah, I'm a pagan in a lot of people's eyes, but what am I saying that's actually divorced from the text itself or from Jesus' own words? Yes, I'm emphasizing, I'm cherry picking. I'm emphasizing that over the divine incentive program, which we absolutely also find in the scriptures and even in the gospels, but so what? It's the text. It's just, it's, it's a text. These are stories. In, in these stories, we find 
good things and not so good things. But then again, I'm a pagan, so I can go there. I can admit that I cherry pick. Conservatives have a hard time admitting that they're cherry picking when of course they are cherry picking, right? Maybe that's the real difference between being a liberal or and a, the real difference between liberal and conservatives. Liberals admit, yeah, I'm cherry picking. The text is there to be cherry picked. Anyway, I don't know. Does that, does that work for you if I converted you? Oh yeah, you've convinced me, thank you. <laughs> Let's get you baptized this morning. Um, all right, no, that's, a, that's a really good question though, thank you. Um, other, maybe anybody wanna dovetail onto that or have a different question or a different comment about any of this? This is the deep end of the pool, so to speak. Yeah, Steve, would you mind? Thanks. Leland. So um, during the first song, the uh, Bo Burnham song, um, yeah. I was holding our, our baby. And then the, the, the lyrics about uh, we were overdue, this will all be over soon, kind of made me tear up singing along, knowing, you know, thinking about that song about the end of the world and, and kind of looking at my seven month old child and thinking, what have I done? I brought this life for him to experience pain, you know, where he's going to see things that I won't and my parents will never have imagined, you know, and uh, it just made me so sad. And then to hear your sermon, just it kind of made me go, oh, this is what this is about, that it's not that we were going to have kids because we can't just give up or to whether we're powerless to stop the corporations or the end of the world, you know, it's, that's not what this is about. We still move on with life. We still move on with love. Yeah. That, that's perfect. Yeah. Thanks, Leland. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I have similar thoughts sometimes when I look at my daughters. Like, what kind of a world have I brought you into? What is the future going to look like for you? Um, this kind of post-dystopian or, you know, capitalistic, apocalyptic, you know, I don't know climate change, all that. I don't, I don't know. But, but you put it well when you said it's an act of hope. It's an act of hope. Because we don't know. I, I think acknowledging our uncertainties about all of this is to also go the other way and say, there's hope because we don't know. If we're willing to acknowledge, we don't know the future and the future is problematic, but we, cannot, we should also acknowledge that there's reason for hope too, because we don't know. It's a two-edged sword, this thing called uncertainty, right? leads us down the path, it depresses us, it also gives us hope. We have to hold on to both. And I'm making a lot of movie references today, and I don't know why, but um, First Reformed, have you seen that film with Ethan Hawke? You're nodding yes. Max, you need to see this. It's really good. Um, came out a couple of years ago, but it deals with this. You know, he kind of loses hope, but then, oh, I'm going to ruin it. Well, no, I won't. I won't. But the point is he kind of loses hope, but he finds it again in love. And I'll just leave it at that. But it deals with how do we find hope in the modern world if we're really honestly apprehending the modern world? How do we go on? And you know, art really helps us work through that, I think. Um, film, art, um, the text, scripture, right? I think that's art as well, literature, right? Our ancient sacred scriptures. It's a beautiful ways that can help us do that. Anyway, but it's a really good point. Thanks for bringing that up. That's the best I can do. 
Um, I don't know. Other, other thoughts? Somebody else have a hand raised? Max? I just want to say something to that because, I mean, like I alluded to before I started that song, I had similar reaction, right? The first, when I was watching that um, movie and just for you, for you that don't know, that first song was from um, Bo Burnham's uh, Inside, so Inside Bo, Bo Burnham, I think is the technical uh, term, but he made an entire film with, you know, a dozen original songs during quarantine. And it's about the experience of this apocalyptic feeling and being stuck. And what do you do with that? Do you make art out of it? Or um, do you sit and wallow? And well, you do both. And sometimes your wallowing becomes art and, you know, and, and you, it's ups and downs. I think <clears throat> part of why that movie is so great is it just connects with us and the human experience so well. But I mean, I, when I first heard that, I was just like sitting there sobbing <laughs> and it was similar, right? Like I look at my two kids and it's like, what have we done, right? We had, <laughs> we had our, our youngest right before a couple months where everything shut down and there's been conversation in our house of like, would we have, would we have chosen to do this if it had been like a year later? Um, but what, what strikes me um, that I just wanted to share that has brought me, I don't know if the words comfort, hope, something um but when i feel like that i also remember um and i mean we can just use the biblical text to start you know paul was convinced the world would end in his lifetime right like that jesus was coming back and there and that everything would end in his lifetime he was wrong um but it wasn't just paul right each all of these successive generations from the beginning of time has borne humanity and, and, and passed along uh, humanity and the stories of humanity in the worst times in history by definition, right? The worst the world has ever been and it's always happened, right? This, this life and death and this rebirth um, and just taking solace in that. I'm like, you know, when I look around, yeah, like, imagine having a kid in the dark ages, right? Like then the life expectancy and all this stuff. And I don't say that to take away from any of the real uh, sense of dread that I feel myself too, but I always remind myself like Aaron, like you said, right? It's a, it's a double-edged sword because that has always been the story of humanity. And obviously the details are different now and we know more ostensibly now and yet we continue to, to move forward and live. Um, so I, I appreciate a little uh, secret. Uh, Aaron and I did not coordinate whatsoever on the songs I was doing and the sermon he was doing. I, I, it happens all the time. Like we just end up being on the same, same wavelength. But I like how you connected those concepts because it is, right? It is like in the midst of despair, the hope is, living right the hope is actually living your life um and that's what we do that's what we can do at least yeah really oh. good yeah yeah uh jesse should have just done like a thank you back and forth. the end of what max was saying makes me think of like the christianity that i find valuable right as a religious studies major um is the christian are the christianities that are born out of the horrific yes right like we see 
the radical nature of love, not in the evangelical church of America. We see it in the Southern church of the slave mm. antebellum. We see it in the civil rights movement. Yeah. We see it in the Dalit people of India because I think Christianity with its separated from the dualistic influence of the Greek and Roman thought is a, is a very embodied faith that also because embodiment means suffering holds to a hope of a future without suffering. And so there's something in that that struck me and I lost my thought. Yeah. But there is something in, in like the living fully in hope now and making those radical choices to bear children in the midst of what feels like cataclysmic realities and living in a failed late state capitalist place and choosing to flourish in those spaces in the face of what feels like impossibility and finding the things that are growing life, right? Because in spite of the, I don't remember how Biden put it in his uh, speech last night at the um, correspondence dinner, but he yeah. said something really quirky about Trump and then we lived through the pandemic. Um, that in spite of living through what is horrific, there is so much community building and so much mutual aid and so much growth and push that has been happening over the last six, six and seven years because we're really seeing the mask of evangelicalism and the mask of the GOP coming off. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is hope in the face of darkness. And I think we're continuing to move into spaces where we're seeing hope in the face of darkness. Yeah. And it's hard because we don't want to see the darkness. Yeah. Oh, that's really good, Jesse. And I could tell how emotionally moved you were um, by those words, as I think we all are. And I was just one of the most um, profound um, experiences I ever had as a Christian in community with other Christians, or the most profound example I've ever seen of, of the gospel being lived out in relationship was at my first GCN conference that I went to like eight years ago um, in Chicago, GCN Gay Christian Network, um, now QCF, Queer Christian Conference. I, I went there and I was surrounded by, I was one of a handful of straight pastors there, but seeing the shared, the shared suffering in that space and the and the gospel in, um, incarnated as simply love and shared suffering and finding an articulation of Christianity in that space among people that have been told that they are going to hell, that they are reprobate, that they are evil, that, you know, seeing that gave me such hopes. Like, this is what it's supposed to be like. This is, it's hard to describe, but it's because of their suffering. It's because of them being treated that way that they found a deeper way, a more divine way of living and being and actually embodying the gospel better than anybody else I ever met. Because I'm, I'm echoing what you're saying. And I, that gives me hope is what I'm saying, that even in the darkest times, the light shines the brighter. If we become that light, if we allow that light to shine through us, I think that's what I'm getting at. But yeah, thanks. You made me 
go there. Uh, uh, any, anybody else um, have, a, have a thought? Um, Gloria. Uh, yes, I just want to say, um, how can I start? I think um, people take and um, they take the word of God and without the uh, revelation from the spirit of God, a lot of times people interpret it in their own way of doing it. So I just believe that when it comes to sin, we can see it continuously every day. We see that because we're seeing where if we look at the Bible, the, which is the word of God, this is my uh, belief. Bible is the word of God, the word that was spoken. God didn't speak all the words, but yet and still those everything that is in the word was inspired to be in the world so believing that the word of god is true i'm just trying to figure get my words together i have to look Sorry. at the old testament uh see a lot of people think that we're still holding on to laws but we have to realize that those laws were fulfilled in christ jesus who came to fulfill the law for us so that we wouldn't have to um, die in our sins. And so uh, when Christ fulfilled those laws, he took all of our sins and everything that we had done or could have done up on himself. This is my belief. And when he took that up on himself and I uh, believed that everything that he did took the place of my guilt, took the place of my sins, took the place of my faults, then being born again of the water and of the spirit, the Lord gave unto me his spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, he imparted that and put that in me when I believed and gave me the power to be able to walk in the love that you're talking about. You're talking about unconditional love. You're talking about uh, loving your enemy, loving the people. Yeah, we have to, because when we love our enemies, therefore we're not holding guilt or we're not judging or we're not uh, holding someone in captive whereby we had to be removed from captivity whereby christ had to forgive us so christ is saying to us forgive peter said how many times lord and uh seven times jesus said oh 70 times seven so in other words, it's this life is a forgiving walk continuously. This life is a loving your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you know, I don't have to just come around and try to pretend that I love you, I love you, but it is just the way that you treat people and you treat people right. This is what Christ is saying. So um, sin is sin, sin is happening every day. Yes, there is sin. It says a transgression of God's law or a breaking of his law. Sin is real. 
we all break it. We all sin every day, probably because we think a few thoughts we should not think or say some things we should not say. But yet and still, the blood that Jesus shed washes our sins away. And that's the glorious uh, thing that I feel that I can look forward to brothers and sisters can look forward to is that Christ has paid the price. And if we're in Christ Jesus, he has forgiven our sins and we can walk that walk that you were uh, preaching on uh, a little while ago. So I just thank and praise God that you allowed me to say something. And um, I praise God for what he's done in my life and everyone else's life that has been born again. So to God be the glory. Uh, just thank you so much for sharing um, all that, Gloria. And I find so much to agree with in that. And I can hear, I feel like I can hear how you've been touched and transformed by the love of God in that. And that's what it's all about, how, how you have been touched and transformed. And we have been touched and transformed by the awesome and unconditional love of God revealed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, we might use different language, different theological language, you know, but if that's where it's all going, then amen. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that and um, welcome. Now, you've been coming for a few weeks. I'm glad you, you took a moment and shared those views with us and you feel comfortable enough to do that here. Welcome. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Well, with that, everybody, uh, it's 1130. We shall conclude. But um, thank you to all of you who are here in person and to all of you that um, joined us virtually online. Um, look forward to seeing you again next week. Go in peace. Mm -hmm.